versus right brain. It used to be that left brainers like accountants and CPAs and engineers were dominating when it came to prosperity. But today we're going to be talking about a whole new mind in Daniel Pink's A Whole New Mind, this book right here, he predicted that the future, which we're living in today, belongs to the right-brainers, the designers, the storytellers, the inventors. And I claim that the left-brainers will never take a back seat. But in order to stand out today and in the future, you have to be a hybrid of both. That's my story and my take on this book, and I'm sticking to it. So if you want to help me unpack Daniel Pink's A Whole New Mind, stick around because we're going to do that in just a second. Welcome to Waste Up Wardrobe. I'm Christine Vartanian, a civil engineer and attorney turned personal style expert and image consultant. As the founder of Jade for All Seasons, I am passionate about unveiling the inner confidence of my clients by developing their personal style. But is getting dressed up still important in our virtual world? Well, that's where my experience can help with what I call Waste Up Wardrobe. Waste Up Wardrobe is a podcast for all things you need to conduct an outstanding Zoom meeting. It's about how to dress for the camera, but it's not just about the clothes. It's about everything you need to know to show up on brand and professionally for the camera. Join me in the Waste Up Wardrobe studio to discuss how to navigate this virtual world and dominate from behind the desk. Hello, Virtual Nation. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Waste Up Wardrobe. I'm so thrilled and excited to be here today. I'm going to be talking about something that is really kind of relevant to all of us. It's uh, based on a book that I had read years ago that I just picked up again to reread. It's kind of interesting. When you read a book um, and then you kind of you, you're in this in this in this in this book that is predicting the future right but you're not in the future yet and then you know 15 years later you're reading it again you're like ah well that's interesting some of these predictions actually were pretty accurate and some of them well not so much so it's so interesting to read a book like in that time gap it's almost like being in a time capsule so today we're going to unpack all of that and i'm going to tell you about that in just a second but i wanted to remind you that we are on um here waste up wardrobe bringing you a new life show every Thursday at 11.30. So consider joining us and bringing a friend. I also want to say thank you for, for being committed to watching the show and using it as a resource. And thank you to my super awesome producer, Rick Moscoso, who's always here in the green room making everything <laughs> just perfect. There he is popping up in the window uh, saying hello and I'm so thrilled and excited to be here and to bring you another show. So Let's get started because I have so much to talk about when it comes to this book called A Whole New Mind. Um, it was this one was um, published in 2005, and that was the first time I was exposed to it. Um, and it was written by um, Daniel Pink, who had this very interesting prediction based on what was going on in the world and how our kids were learning and what the future looked like. Um, and so the first thing he discusses in the book is sort of this idea of the right brain rising, right? So we have a left brain and we have a right brain. We always hear about that. But he also doesn't like to isolate it as like right brain and left brain, because truthfully, our brain is made up of these two hemispheres are both very critical and important. Um, he really thought, was terming it in the book um, as L-directed thinking and right and R-directed thinking. So those were the two ways he was sort of separating between, you know, the L-directed thinking uh, people and then the right-directed thinking people. And so the left brain, just to kind of define this, the left brainers are sort of good at reasoning, sequential reasoning. They excel at analysis and looking at the details. They are good at text and, um, and language. Um, whereas the right brainers are more sort of the big picture people, right? The designers, the inventors, the people who look at things holistically um, and they recognize patterns and they interpret emotions. So empathy is a big right directed thinking uh, piece of, of your brain. And um, 
the right brainers tend to see things in context. They see the, that big picture, which he later, I learn as I read the book, calls symphony, sort of seeing sort of the big picture. Um, and he really emphasizes, and this is something that is really important to understand, is that humans, well, we are designed with two minds, right? We have the left and the right hemispheres of our brain, and they're basically like your yin and yang. You can't have one without the other. Um, they work together and they work kind of in the smooth sort of way of um, of making things happen. So, you know, because if you think about it, if the if L-directed thinking really is about analysis and logic, um, if you just had logic without the right brain's emotional piece or the, you know, emotional quotient piece, then you kind of are just kind of like a robot, right? And if you have the, you know, the right, the, the right brainers, if you just had, you know, emotionality, um, and design and this idea of, you know, just being an inventor and a creative without logic, then you kind of just it becomes hysteria. So they both are very critical to the way we work. Uh, but I think what he was trying to drive home is that, you know, um, the, the right brainers have been neglected. The idea of people who are inventive and creative and design oriented and aesthetic, um, you, know, you know, really pay attention to aesthetics. It wasn't as important. Uh, schools weren't really kind of they weren't really catering to that group. They were more, you know, kind of respectful of the engineer, the lawyer, the, um, the accountant, right? And didn't really realize that the right brainers, like the creatives and those who really are, you know, design oriented needed also um, the attention because, well, fast forward to today's world. Um, and as we talk through this today, you'll see why it is so important to pay attention to the right brainers and how come and how they are kind of coming up, out on top right now. Um, and so the thing he also highlights, I think is so interesting in the book is that the reason all this came about is because of our, our time of automation, right? There's so much automated right now because um, things are being outsourced to other countries. And it started back then in the 2000s. They're being outsourced to other countries. You can have, um, you know, people do things less expensively in other countries and, and things just became more and more automated. And now with the development of AI, we can see how that's true, right? Automation has made things like things that computers can do um, um, a lot simpler and faster than even the human brain, which I think is so interesting. And the other piece was sort of this age of abundance. So we were kind of getting into this age of automation and abundance that was starting to make that right directed thinking more and more attractive. Because again, if you are, you know, if you have a lot of automation, well, that's all sort of left directed thinking and the computers can do all that. But where's the emotion that's involved um, so that you can stand out and be different? And when it comes to abundance, we had so much available to us on the market when it comes to, you know, buying products. So what made things stand out and what makes the con things continue to stand out is sort of the design of things. I mean, you know, you can buy a toaster for function, but if you have a toaster for function and then another one that is functional and pretty, people are we're picking design and aesthetics as well. And so I am so curious what, Rick, you think about this idea of um, sort of the right right directed thinking rising and this idea of automation um, kind of giving rise to it as well as the age of abundance because of course we have choices now right we can choose between you know the fancy toaster that looks nice and sits on your counter looking nice and also um just you know instead of just getting the one that just functions well do you have any thoughts on this rick i know you're there yeah i'm here yeah. Um, well, there's there's different thoughts. It depends what you're you're uh, referring to. I, you know, in the world of education and, and teaching, um, I think you have to have a really good balance of both. Um, we tend to get at least we people tend to get a little bit too factual and a little bit too nerdy on on the details of things, right? And 
you, it's it's easy to see when you see a PowerPoint presentation and pages and pages of data go by and there's like a gazillion words on each slide and no one's going to ever read it or remember what you're talking about. But if you can, you can simplify it and and use storytelling to get your point across. Then it's more compelling. People will lean in. They're more, it makes it makes it more interesting and you're more likely to remember the point that they're trying to get across or yeah. the thing that they're trying to teach you. So uh, from, from that perspective, it, I think it's, I think it's really important to have a balance of both. Yeah, exactly. And so in, in, as we dig deeper into the book, um, you mentioned storytelling. That's a big thing that Daniel Pink talks about as one of the six senses of what he calls a conceptual age, right? This age of where right directed thinking is so critical to make you stand out as a business owner and, and how the right um, the R directed thinking actually is does affect your bottom line when it comes to business. So it's interesting that you even bring that up. Um, so which will takes me right into what he calls the six senses <clears throat> of the conceptual age. And the first thing he talks about, I mean, there's, you know, I can give an overview of what they are, but I think I'm going to take them one at a time because they are so interesting individually. Design, right? Not just function, but also design. It's kind of like the example of the toaster I said, right? If you have a toaster that functions great, that's great. And you have another one that functions great, but also looks pretty sitting on your counter. People have tended to really go for aesthetics when it comes to that. And who has created that? Well, the designers and the inventors and the people who really have that aesthetic um, aesthetic feel down that have designed these things. And I mean, it's not only like household appliances, but I just think it's so interesting that even it, it that it even boils down to household appliances. But we see that in um you know, in the car industry, in design of buildings and design of really anything your eyes um, see and enjoy, really. So it is such a big thing. Design has become a big deal and they matter. Aesthetics really does matter to people. <clears throat> you know, sleek designs and not just, again, um, like everyday household function, uh, you know, um, appliances, but like electronics too, right? Cars, like I said. And, um, <clears throat> And it has become an essential, he calls this an essential aptitude. Being able to design has become an, um, an essential aptitude. Um, and he gave a couple of examples I thought were very interesting. And I'm really excited to see what Rick thinks about this. But one of the proofs, the evidence he gave when it comes to whether or not, you know, this really matters, right? Does design really matter? I mean, is this just superficial? Is that example of, um, that there was a lot of growing body of evidence that showed that design, even in medical settings, improved and helped patients get better faster, which I thought, wow, that is so interesting because there's something that if you're having this conversation with a right brain, uh, excuse me, a left brainer, and they're like, no, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. You know, people are going to choose function every time over um, aesthetics, but I'm not saying one or the other. I'm saying that you get both with right, you know, right directed thinking. Um, but here's evidence that even when it comes to our health and happiness, that design aesthetics really matter. And he said that patients in a better designed ward required less pain meds um, than those living in um, less inviting uh, wards and were discharged sooner. I mean, I think that is fascinating, right? And I'm not surprised because I do believe that when your environment is pleasing to you, you your mood is better. Um, I mean, that's sort of the premise of my work. I do believe that if you dress better, you are more confident, your mood is better, you're more likely to want to socialize with people and go out and network in business. So it's interesting. It's very aligned. And, and Rick, I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I, mean, I, I worked for years in the medical industry uh, as, as well as my wife. And, you know, <clears throat> we I've had many opportunities going into hospitals and, and clinics that were both old and new, right? And then yeah. you go into the older Older ones that haven't been updated lately, it's the green x-ray machines and the room just looks like it's been there since the 60s, right? And yeah. even though the, the equipment is functional, you just it just feels like you're not getting the best care. 
for yeah. some reason, you know, yeah. uh, but you walk into a, a suite that that's updated, has the newest and latest and greatest, uh, you know, x-ray machines or CT or MR, MRI machines. You feel like you're, you feel like, okay, these guys know what they're doing. They've invested so, you know, all this money in, into updated equipment. Your, your mindset uh, immediately, immediately goes. If you're, I mean, if you're sick and you go into some place like this and you see all this technology, it's like, okay, I'm going to be well taken care of. I feel, I already feel more comfortable. My, my stress level is down. My anticipation, my anxiety is down, uh, be, because because I see all this. It the room's clean, high tech equipment's around there. Um, it's amazing what that can do for patient care, um, and 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 comfort. Um, I was talking to somebody at the uh, administrator at uh, one of the local hospitals here in Southern Cal or Southern Orange County. And um, that's that's one of the things that they want to imply to their patients, you know, is that is the feeling that when you walk into a room, an examination room, it's clean, it's up to date. Everyone's, you know, there to help you. They're smiling. They have a great attitude. And all of a sudden, they find that over the studies that they've done, their 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 mindset is is more calm. Yeah, right? they're they are uh, uh, they feel more comfortable. They feel like okay, I have some competent uh, people that are going to be taking care of me. And then they find, in the long run, they find what exactly what you're saying is that their time in the hospital is shortened because now their body and mind um, um, is in a place that makes them uh, more comfortable. They they already start to feel better just because their mindset is in the right place. Right? Yeah, I love it when like scientific evidence supports like better aesthetics. Like that is like so so key. It's like so important to me because I truly believe that even my line of work that when you dress better, you feel better, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't buy into that. They go, it shouldn't matter. But it does. It does. And, you know, part of the research that that Daniel uh, Pink in his book says is that medical facilities designed with better light, more privacy, more comforts with prettier settings have sped up the healing process. So remarkable to me. But it's yeah. all. See, I believe that everything starts in the mind. And so that is just proof over and over again that it's it's so much what you what your mind is thinking, what is happening up here that impacts your physical body and the way you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it's, it's just, it's so interesting. So the bottom line is that design is a high concept aptitude that is a right brain function, a right directed thinking function. And it's difficult to outsource. You can't outsource that, right? If we, you know, looking at this world of automation that brought us to the point where right directed thinking is important. Um, you know, computers can automate so many things, but they can't automate design and high concept, the sort of this aesthetic. And um, so those companies, those businesses, those individuals that pay attention to providing not only good, good service and functional service and really, um, the good work, but also pay attention to how they're delivering it when it comes to aesthetics and design really will stand out. And they have stood out in this time. Good design brings pleasure. It's kind of brings beauty in our lives. And that is why I think it's so important. And that's why, you know, Daniel Pink really um, emphasizes that as his first, the the first six sense, first of the six senses that he outlines when it comes to conceptual age. The second um, of these, um, of the six senses, he calls story. Um, and I know many of us can relate to it as, you know, for business owners, entrepreneurs working in today's world, um, we don't want to just hear about facts. We don't want to hear like somebody just giving us this like bunch of statistics. No, we want to hear a story. And why? Well, because um, stories stick with us. We get to experience a story. We feel it, 
right? And this is what he says. When you hear a narrative based on facts alone, it's very difficult to recall and remember. But people want to hear stories. Stories help us helps us recall better. Stories allow us exactly to experience a thing which it helps us and it helps us remember. Um, and today's companies, you'll see like you, you go on somebody's website, what's the first thing that good companies do? They tell you a story that engages you, that makes you want to invest in them, makes you want to buy their product. I mean, I think the the companies that I invest in the most that I buy their product or I'm attracted to have a very high aesthetic because I am very attracted to high aesthetics. Um, and I and they also are um are, are companies with stories. I, I want to know who started that company, how why they started it. It's actually so related to the work I do when I work with clients on their branding is like I always tell them we have to start with your story. Um, and we need to start with why that's your story, which we'll get to in a bit, because they he does talk about purpose and meaning too as something that's really important and is sort of a, a our directed thinking thing sense. Um, but story companies have visions. What is a vision? Well, that is a story, right? And so companies with nowadays when we apply to work for a company, we want to be associated with a company, we want to know what their vision is. What is the vision? And what does vision mean? What is their story? Why do they do what they do? What do they they see their mission as being? And what and and do you want like do you like the culture that they've created with their uh, vision? Um there you know stories are fascinating as human beings we're wired to hear stories and want to hear stories ever since we were like children, right? Tell me a story. We, you know, our parents used to read us stories. Um, they inspire us. I mean, when I hear somebody get up on stage and talk about their journey and their story, boy, do I get, you know, pumped up and inspired and motivated. Um, so it's just that human nature of being set up to understand stories, not necessarily the logical components of the facts and the statistics, but what is the story? You know, it's that story that packs that emotion, that emotional punch um, that allows us to connect and relate with people and companies in general. In fact, he refers to the hero's journey. And I know that Rick will have something to say about this. We, It's uh, the hero's journey, something that's used in playwriting a lot uh, and script uh, creation. Um, but it's also a very common way that you know, movies tell stories. And if you are creating your own story, a hero's journey um, script is a really great way to tell that story. Rick, do you have a take on the hero's journey as it relates to this sense, uh, conceptual age sense of um, storytelling? Oh, absolutely. It's a great, <clears throat> it's a great framework to, you know, for any, anyone who, who is wondering, well, how do I, how do I, talk about my story how do i craft that but if you look at the framework of a hero's journey yeah. um people want to hear they don't want to hear just about your success they want to know how you got there and if there is a struggle in there someplace if there's a compelling emotional component to your story then uh, that's something that that you can certainly bring out and make it more interesting and and i and i try and use that with clients all the time when they do their um do their uh, um, about me video, right? Or their profile video, trying to talk a little bit about who they are um, rather than what they're selling. Then um, it, you, you make it a lot more interesting. You make people, like I, like I always say, people will tend to lean in and, and uh, it helps build credibility because you're talking about the struggle that may parallel what the viewer uh, went through you know, yeah. in some way or form. So it's it's a good framework to, to work from. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. It really helps us as as a the public listening to somebody's story relate to somebody else, right? And that's what we want we want people to do when they're engaging with us. We want them to know that we can relate to them and that we have this kind of you know, um, this journey where it wasn't always great, but then you know we we found, you know, we we kind of came great out at the end that that's a hero's journey and story affects the a business's bottom line. I mean, um, you know, story and business does mean big money because again, the more compelling the story is, the more powerful it is, the more people want to be part of that company, either whether they're part of a team or actually investing in the company. Um, and so it's a, it's kind of a marketing tool, right? Oh, it's a great marketing tool. In fact, <clears throat> I've, I've, you take it a step further as a parent, right? You, if you can, if you can use that 
storytelling it doesn't have to be from you but if it from an example maybe a friend went through something like this that where you can use that story to drive home a point that you're trying to teach your your kid or you're trying to um, impress upon him that his actions weren't actually the best idea the best decision that he ever made but if you can imply it to something in something that's a little bit more real and it doesn't have to be from your perspective but it, you know uh, maybe a friend went through the same thing, then they'll tend to, it'll tend to to stick with them a little bit longer rather than you trying to say, no, you shouldn't have done that. That was a bad decision. You know, um, um, th that, that sort of thing. I, I use it all the time on my son and it seems to work because then I hear him sometimes repeating it to friends. And it's like, <laughs> okay, so that's stuck. Right, with well, there you go. That's a good, uh, <laughs> good, a good reason. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, story is marketing. It's, per, it's a way to persuade. And, um, you know, Pink says that it, it's the way for individuals and entrepreneurs to distinguish their goods and services in a crowded marketplace. So that's all marketing, right? And he uses some more medical examples, which I think is so interesting again. Well, it's specifically talking about medical providers, right? And talks about those medical providers that spend time with the patient, understanding their story, understanding their struggle, understanding what brought them in and why their ailments are happening, as opposed to kind of checking boxes off and try and putting them in a, in like a, in a box, right. Or in a template can really help, um, make an impact in their health and maybe, and help them find out the key to why they have a certain ailment. Well, let's take that a little further because <clears throat> I'm working on a project. Uh, I'd mentioned it earlier with a local hospital here. And one of the administrators is, is trying to, um, figure out, okay, you have a different age of healthcare providers today, right? Uh, a different genre of doctors who are being trained. They're embracing all this technology, but yet they forget sometimes the old school um, bedside manners that Ooh. that um, someone like my father, who's a, a retired surgeon, you know, I've watched him over the years in, in his bedside manner. I never really understood it until now, right? Until recently. And it's like, okay. Um, and so what they're trying to do at this particular hospital is how do we capture that bedside manner and train the new doctors that are coming in? Mm -hmm. and, and the purpose behind that is that you never know who the next benefactor, where the next benefactor is going to come from. Um, and, and it could be a doctor just sitting with a patient, holding their hand, talking about the, their course of action, you know, um, it, and, and she, uh, this, this lady I'm working with, she quotes that several times where the doctor has taken the, the time to sit with that patient, even though it was during the busy day, they went, the, the, the patient went through the struggle of recovery and all that stuff. And, but at the end of the day, they remembered that this doctor took extra special time with me to talk about this. And so, in those in those special cases where they did this, they didn't know at the time, but these were like wealthy benefactors who ended up donating millions of dollars back to the hospital because of the patient care, because the doctor listened, because they just spent the time uh, that that extra that extra bit of um, compassion with them that sometimes you know a lot of times we just take for granted. We don't see that anymore. Yeah, no, I mean that is definitely really important. And I think that makes the difference between a physician who really stands out and somebody is just kind of doing it as a job, right? Because just paying attention to the individual. I mean, we're all individuals who want that specialized attention. You're right. As a physician who's caring for somebody else in that caregiver situation, you want to feel like you are, you know, that you're important in that moment that that physician or is, is talking to you or caring for you. And what Pink was saying in his book is that there was this sort of movement in the medical in the medical school field where they were starting to create classes that were geared towards um, teaching and reminding students that they are in a field where empathy is really important and where understanding people's journey is really important. And they were doing, they were actually creating classes around that, which I thought, I mean, yeah, that, that seems like it should be kind of mm -hmm. standard. Yeah. So uh, like I, like I mentioned, my, uh, 
the lady that I'm working with, she's going back to the University of Wisconsin for a month to teach this exact thing to their medical students. Yeah. So it's uh, it's it's you know what you're saying is absolutely on on the dot, right? Um, it, it's very important. People take it take it um, for granted sometimes, and it's you know it's not just in the medical field; it could be anywhere, um, totally. any, any trade. Yeah, but it's so interesting because like now we're so like I said, the book was published. The one I have was published in two thousand five, right? Mm -hmm. It was predicting this movement, and we see all these things happening, and we see why you know all this you know automation now with abundance of like and, and the you know just progression in AI, and, you know artificial intelligence and so forth. It really is materializing, you know, just these distinctions between, you know, the logic, but also these things that you cannot automate, like storytelling, understanding somebody's story, empathy, design and aesthetics, those things cannot be necessarily automated. So it's so interesting. And the next um, of, this, of the six senses is the symphony. He talks about symphony. I love that, the way he says that, because what symphony means is sort of seeing the big picture. Um, L-directed thinking is really about analysis, analyzing, seeing the detail. Right-directed thinking is about seeing the big picture. Um, how things happen in a big picture. And he calls it symphony. So not to just focus on one thing, but really looking at the entire picture and entire symphony um, and being able to piece it together, right? So it's not just you you are as a right um, brainer able to see the big picture, but then you can also, being able to see the big picture, you can piece it together as well. He also talks about something that's so interesting uh, under this idea of symphony is metaphor, like speaking in metaphor, conveying story in metaphor can be so powerful. And uh, Rick, I, you know, I love metaphor. Like for me, I, I believe that I have, um, I mean, I have a lot of L directed thinking traits because of my education, but a nat I'm a natural right directed thinker uh, because obviously I'm in a design as high aesthetic field. And so, and I've always seen myself as that. So um, it's just so interesting what he says, right? He says that using metaphor is kind of a way of right directed thinkers to, to, to convey story and to just, and to see things. Any ideas on that or thoughts? Oh yeah, absolutely. We see that in any successful program that you watch or any series that you watch, uh, especially, well, let me, let me just, let me just, cause I'm a fan of Star Trek, right? So <laughs> if you, if you watch Star Trek, some of their best episodes are, are in metaphor, right? But they're, they're citing examples, um, of, of, um, I, I can tell you that, um, like the next generation, right? The character Captain Picard, is someone who studies Greek mythology, and and by understanding that and understanding things like Shakespeare, right? There's a lot of metaphor metaphorical stories in there that they that parallel today's actions, so to speak, right? And so he goes back and forth, and he uses a lot of metaphor in, in that storytelling uh, way to emphasize what's what's important today right what was it what's important today was also important way back when when shakespeare was writing his things but metaphorically it's the same thing right yeah yeah no it's fascinating i mean that is such a great you know sometimes i'll speak in metaphor and my kids are like what are you saying i'm like well <laughs> i'm just trying to have a teaching moment but it's true like as as creatives you're able to think more metaphor and it and, and metaphor can help you get a point across, which I think is so interesting in general. Um, the next uh, of the six six senses um, of the conceptual age that he, he calls out is empathy. So it's so interesting too, because he he does this whole thing where he does a whole chapter on each of the six senses. Um, and then he gives you these um, ideas of how to hone that skill, hone that sense. Um, and I went and I took an empathy, uh, like, you know, empathy, empathy rating test, which I thought was very interesting. And, um, and so he, he gives you all these tools and stuff. So it's so interesting um, to just kind of dig deep into who you are too, as you read the book and 
where you'd like to go and be. But empathy is not just, you know, we, we just don't want to focus on logic. We also have to have empathy because without empathy, we become just automated robots, really. Empathy is so critical in all of these professions, right? To be able to feel um, for the person that you're serving and to um, and understand that and have that emotional quotient so that you can be a better, um, not just individual and human, but also be a better contributor to whatever business that you're in. Um, in, in the age of AI, it gets even more important because, of course, with a lot of the artificial intelligence, there's no empathy involved in that, right? So it's, and, and what is empathy really? Empathy is ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And he's very specific about saying it's not sympathy, it's empathy, it's different. It's not feeling sorry for somebody. It's actually being able to put yourself in their shoes um, so that you can understand the experience that they're having, whether whatever that experience might be. He also says, and this is why it's so important in today's world, is that leadership, you know, if you're a leader in a company, if you are the CEO or CFO of a company, that leadership is all about empathy. It's about having the ability to relate and connect to people for the purpose of inspiring and empowering them. And that was sort of an aha moment of the book. Um, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Rick, but it is... I just thought that was, you know, as leaders, sometimes we tend to be very um, logical. We kind of have to get things done, goal oriented. But as a good leader, you really have to have that emotional quotient. Oh, there's no doubt about it. If you if you have uh, if you are a supervisor or uh, uh, you have a bunch of direct reports to you, then you absolutely have to have that component of of empathy to to understand what their frust really what their frustration is what their complaint is if it, if it's that and and how 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 to help them along in the process you know a, a a simple thing a simple diffuser when you come into an argument that I've always learned and you've heard me say this before is that you know I know how you feel I felt I felt the same way but here's how here's what helped me get through that situation yeah. and and don't be fake about it. I mean, it's a, it's a it's an easy formula to use in response to somebody who has a complaint. But if you can really say that that yes, that's happened to me before, you know, and I, I totally understand uh, how how that can affect you. But you know, here's how I got through it. And and <clears throat> again, here's another example. I I use that on my son right, all the time, right? And it's like I wish I would have known this with my daughters early on because it you know uh, could have saved me some time, but. Um, he he responds well to that. He understands that, and I think as a leader of a group, um, maybe like I said, as a supervisor, that's something that you really have to you have to learn if you don't know how to do that, and you have to learn how to do that with um, um, not only compassion but with with authenticity. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He also mentions about reading faces, which I thought was also very interesting because if you're in a supervisory role and you are like interviewing somebody or trying to understand what somebody is like, like their body language, right? He talks about how, uh, and he has like a lot of uh, diagrams of figures in the, in the book itself, just people who do a fake smile versus people who do a, a genuine one. And he talks yeah. about how as somebody who has a high emotional quotient, um, you're good, you're better at reading faces and understanding the emotions of another person. It can pay off in spades if you're in a leadership role to really know, kind of get into the mind of the person that you're talking to, right? Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, <clears throat> one of the one of the biggest mistakes as a person as a leader of a group or have that has direct reports is that you already know the answer well ahead of of when before they even finish the question, right? And that's like the that that's like the 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 biggest mistake that you can make as as a uh, as a supervisor as a leader. Um, and and one thing that I learned along the way is that I learned how to listen with the intent to understand versus with the intent to just answer the question. And that takes some practice. That takes yeah. a lot of patience. I like that. Um, and and uh, you know once you learn how to do that, then empathy kind of falls right behind that because now you're actually listening to them. You're understand you're trying to understand where they're coming from. Right. Yeah. And that's where empathy comes in as very handy in medicine in the medical field, because obviously it creates that better bed, you know, chair side manner, bedside manner, whatever you want to call it. But 
having a, a, a physician that is empathizing with your, you know, your pain and understands can really give you a better outcome. And it makes you feel heard as a, you know, as a patient, but again, in any profession, right? If you're a leader in a company and you can empathize, empathize with some of the struggles your employees are having, makes you a better leader. Um, and, you know, he, he says that, you know, empathy is sort of the great gift of human beings, right? And that's what distinguishes us from the robot is that ability to have the emotional quotient and have um, the ability to understand, put ourselves in other shoes, something, you know, the age of AI will never be able to do. Oh, I'll, I won't say we'll never because I don't know, but it won't, should not be able to and will not be able to do. Um the next thing is one of my favorite senses that he outlines as part of the conceptual age, because this is a value in my company and it is the sixth sense of play and how important that is. It's not just about seriousness, he says, it's about play, play and laughter and joyfulness. And we are, he's, he kind of flatly says play is not frivolous. Um, he actually used a, a, a metaphor, or an example. I think I want to say it was Ford Motor um, Motors who had a very serious working environment. You couldn't laugh or play. You couldn't laugh or joke around at all. And how that impacted the de demeanor and the culture of the company. And, and he contrasted that to companies that actually had, you know, more play, more joyfulness, more having fun, more laughter um, in it, and how the productivity really was impacted. Um, so he did sort of this idea of the difference between serious companies and those which incorporate play. Um, and the thing is, we know from the gaming industry how important play can be and how much money it can bring in, right? So this idea of play, and it's, again, I just find this book so fascinating and everything that it said, but I always, as a as somebody who, you know, raised four children and just sort of that observing that development in the toddler years and really being um, interested in early childhood development, um, I always thought it was so interesting when people would say, oh, they're just playing. And the thing is, children, well, that's how they learn. They learn through play. And as human beings and even as adults, play is really important for our inner well-being. Um, it involves like being joyful and happy. It gives us pleasure. And that is really important for our well-being. In fact, he referred to like in India, they have like laughter clubs, which I thought was interesting um, just to kind of promote humor and just lightheartedness that gave people joy and just kind of focusing on joy um, and how that has become something that in the conceptual age is really important. Whether you're in a company, whether you're starting a company, where you, whether you own a company, it's really important to incorporate that sort of joyful streak, that happiness, that play, um, that doesn't make you a very serious entity. And so Rick, do you, can you relate to any of that or uh, you have any thoughts on that as well? Oh, I can't hear you because you are mute. I am muted. Sorry about that. No, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of play. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, uh, one of the last companies that I worked for, um, Fridays were our somewhat of a play day for us right and the way we came in the way we dressed it was it was yep. dressed down fridays um we had um different activities during the day where we could just you know have have fun even though if it was only for a half an hour or whatever but it just like it lightened the corporate environment so people were more more relaxed going into the weekend right yeah. which means yeah. they'd come back on monday with a better mindset because they ended the week right and and so um i know tammy my my wife um she manages a lot of people across the country and it's kind of hard to for all of them to get together unless they have a major meeting but on fridays she tries to have a a, a social you know zoom or a social and you know time with them where uh at at four o'clock or 3 30 or whatever happens to be they all kind of get together whoever can get together they have a glass of wine together and then they um they don't talk about work. They just talk about what's going on in the weekend. What are you guys doing? And just it's a it's it's a social um, hour. And so um, I, I think you can find different creative ways to do that in whatever situation that you're in, whether you're in your office or you're working virtually. I think it's it's a healthy component of good fellowship, and I, I think you'll you'll earn respect of your subordinates if if you do if you lighten it up like that. 
Well, yeah, and it's a huge thing with company culture. I mean, company culture is so important for us today in our age. And so I see that prediction just kind of, you know, finding its roots in this, right? I mean, this is this is exactly what he predicted. Play is important. And you see companies creating these cultures around playfulness, lightheartedness, some joyfulness, casual Fridays, you know, social hours, um, things where you're not talking about work that really contribute to a better culture in the company. I mean, you like even like if you look at Google and some of the pictures you see of the Google company, you're like, oh, that is <laughs> would be so fun to work there, right? Crazy, yeah. Or or um it was interesting. I was listening to a seminar on uh, a conversation on company culture and Zappos, I think was the company highlighted and they were just showing pictures of their environment. And I was like, Oh my God, this is like crazy. It's like, it, it doesn't look like an office. It looks like so fun. It looks like mm -hmm. Disneyland or something. It just <laughs> looks so interesting and so fun and lighthearted to be there. And so his prediction of this idea of play and lightheartedness and joyfulness in the company environment, I mean, it's coming true. We're seeing this pop up in so many different company cultures. Um, his final six sense, and stay with me on this. Oh, Rick, you just, oh, you just coming back. Okay. Is meaning the sixth sense of meaning, which is another such an important piece today in today's companies. We talked about story. Um, and this is sort of what I work on with my clients when we work on the brand and under, you know, really putting out a good brand identity. What, how do you even start that? We have to start with your story. And where does the story come from? Well, it starts with your why, your purpose, the meaning. And he was saying that, that um, it, you know, that um, based on his research and findings that man's goal in life isn't to ultimately gain pleasure or avoid pain, but it's really to find meaning in life. And I tend to think, yeah, I mean, if I think about, you know, getting maturing and what I think about is like you, a lot of us reflect on, okay, so what is my purpose? Like, what is the, what is the bigger purpose? Why am I here? Am I important? Is there, is there, is there a meaning to everybody's existence, right? And so it ties that in very closely with the idea of spirituality in the book. And he's very cautious to say not religion, but spirituality, like being in touch with, um, because, you know, people get a little bit like, um, they don't want to talk about religion a lot, but he talks about it being you know, having a spiritual connection to your spirit and understanding what your purpose is in life. Um, and I think it's so true. I mean, I think, I mean, how many times you hear people say, what's the purpose? Why am I even here? Yeah. 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 And, and that, that's, that's something that needs to be clearly defined, you know, in not only in the culture that you're in, but also in your story. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you want you want people to believe, and th this goes for your employees or even your your customers out there. You want people to believe in what you believe in, right? And yeah. you you tell the story in the way that it's like, yeah, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that uh, company. I want to be part of that charge. Um, I want to own some of that, you know. And and so, you know, if you haven't thought about that before, it's something that you really need to just kind of sit sit back and write it down and and see if it's compelling enough to want to share with others um uh so many times um i i i talk to business owners and they don't have a clear purpose i mean their purpose is to be profitable for next month so they can play their pay their employee pay their employees uh, obviously, but what's the long term? What's the long term purpose? Why Why are you doing this? Is this something that you're going to leave, uh, uh, or you want to leave a legacy for your your children? Is it to, to change uh, your community? Is it you know what What is it? And if you don't if you don't know, then maybe you should take some time to find out what that is. Yeah, exactly. I talk about this with entrepreneurs all the time. It's like you can't your purpose and your meaning in life. It can't be I want to make money. Of course, we all want to prosper, right? That goes without saying. We all want to make a living, and we all want to make a living for our families and ourselves. But that can't be the absolute meaning because you know the meaning, the purpose of your life um, when it is met, then the prosperity comes. But you have to tap into that. You have to get viscerally connected to your purpose and your meaning in life. And, and you, it changes as you 
you mature, right? I mean, when you're younger, you might think you have a certain purpose, but then things happen and evolve and you're like, ah, I didn't realize this was my purpose. But what he says is that is such an important piece in the conceptual age is these six senses that you have to get really dialed in on. And so um, with the hashtag mind and shine, I would love to get on a call and even dissect this book even further and connect with you, whether, you know, we it's a telephone conversation or a Zoom, because there is so much packed into here that is, we're seeing really standing out in today's world um, because of all the innovation and all of the AI. And so what is really going to make you as a business owner, as an individual stand out? And the, and so the hashtag is mind and shine, hashtag mind and shine. And let's jump on a call and really, you know, talk about this. I think it's, it's fascinating. And it's really important as a business owner to kind of understand this uh, because it's the way our world works today. And if you're really stuck in just a logical L-directed way of thinking, you're not going to maximize your potential. You're not going to maximize your purpose in life. So the Waste Up Wardrobe weekly wrap-up is that your main takeaway is understanding that the right directed thinking is rising. It has been for the last several years, but we are sort of in the thick of it right now where design innovators, creatives are really standing out and 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 making um, a name for themselves. And especially during this day and age of you know, the rise of artificial intelligence and so many other things. Um, so one of the things I wanted to, okay, so the takeaway was that. And then the um, tool is that you want to, this book, this book is such a good book. It's good. It's a great read. It's an easy read. And it kind of lays it all out and it gets you really thinking. The six senses, remember that as a tip, remember those six senses, right? Um, design story, symphony, empathy, play, and finally meaning, purpose in life. Those six senses are the new six senses of the conceptual age. And if you pay attention to them as a business owner, you will stand out. Your company will stand out. So an action item is look at these senses and see where you can hone them a little different. And it's interesting because Dan Pink, Daniel Pink says that you can actually get better at all those things. You can get better, better and you can increase your emotional quotient. You know, we thought, oh, maybe just it's constant and you can't change it, but you can, you can get better at it. You can get better at storytelling. You can get better at, you know, incorporating, incorporating play into your work. So, and, and telling your story. So you can get better. So an action item is look at these six senses, see where you could use a little bit more work and, you know, maybe do one or two exercises that gets you there. And also, you know what? Give yourself credit for the six, one of the six senses that you're doing really, really well. If you are great at empathizing with your with people, then that is amazing. Just keep on doing it. And there you have it. That's a waste up a waste up wardrobe episode 96 today. We'll see you next week at the same time, same place, 1130 here Pacific, where we'll bring you a new fresh episode. And we'll see you then. 